And I give you Marsha to introduce our speaker. Woohoo! Um, okay. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm not muted. Okay, sorry. I always, I, I like playing with buttons. My apologies. So, um, um, it's because y'all have accents. That's what it is. Every time I hear y'all talk, I think of Patty. You know, when I first came into the, um, um, into AA, it was the traditional AA, and I was grumpy as hell. Oh my gosh, it was scary. And this man, um, somehow got me to a restaurant with a bunch of other people I didn't know, got my phone number out of me and called me regularly for a long time. And if it weren't for that, I don't think I'd be here in, in a, he took all of my barriers away just by asking simple questions. He pulled my head out of my butt. Um, and, um, I'm forever grateful to this man right here. This is Patty. He was my first sponsor. I've had six of them six he was the original <laughs> so thank you very much um and let's uh, it's all yours patty it's all yours talk as long as you want um but at least for a while you know you know <laughs> thanks all right uh, thank you marcia yeah my name is patty i'm an alcoholic and it's good to be here actually not to be the only person with a strange accent it's uh, kind of being home again <laughs> Anyway, uh, I'd ask you just to keep an open mind on what I have to say. This is just my story. Um, I, I could start off by saying the, the best decision I ever made, and it was a drunken one at that, was to ask for help. Um, I grew up in a small village in the southwest of Ireland, a place called Waterville. I grew up in an alcoholic home. My father would have been termed of what they would call nowadays, I suppose, a periodic alcoholic in the sense that he'd be on and off the booze. And when he was off, things were okay. When he was drinking, it was somewhat chaotic. So uh, that's not always a good start for a young child, I guess, to grow up in an alcoholic home. It's, it's a place that's full of stress and full of fear and full of what I would call angst. I would call it the angst of the spirit or the angst of the soul. And uh, one of the things that he would say to me, though, when he was drunk, he would come home drunk and he would say, Paddy, whatever you do, don't drink. He'd always give me that advice, but it was always when he was drinking that he would say it. And I kind of had no intention of drinking because I saw what it did to him. But I also saw what it did to a lot of other people in the village. And uh, I had no great interest in it at all. To me, it was something that caused a lot of problems for people. And uh, funny enough, when I was about, um, I'd say I was about 10 or 11 years old, somebody gave the book Alcoholics Anonymous to my father. And it was lying around the house. And I was a great reader as a kid because it was a great escape to read. And I found this book and I opened it up and I, I read the stories at the back. And they were very interesting, I thought, because there were stories of redemption, stories of people whose lives had kind of fallen apart because of the booze. And then they somehow got well again. And then there was kind of lived happily ever after sort of thing. And that kind of appealed to me. But it's interesting that the first part of the book had no interest to me because I didn't really understand it. But I also didn't make any connection between it and what was happening, say, with my father. And to me, this thing that they called alcoholism was an American thing because the book came from America. So it was kind of about Americans. 
It really didn't apply to Irish people. So I, I, I remember giving the book away to a, another friend of mine to tell him about the stories at the back. And that was the last I heard of it. The other connection that I had with alcoholics or with alcoholism was I was in working in Cork for a while. And one evening on the Irish, on the I think with the Cork Evening Echo, they had an article on alcoholism. And it was the first time I had read anything about alcoholism and I was about 21 or two. And what they were saying in there, particularly blackouts, was happening to me. And that was the first time I made a connection, I guess, between my drinking and what they were calling alcoholism. And it came across to me that this is a very serious issue, that this apparently doesn't happen to so-called social drinkers. And the other incident that I had with alcoholics, uh, with alcoholism and AA was uh, the year before I stopped drinking, my boss told me that I had to go to this meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous that was being held in Cahar Savine in the southwest of Ireland, where I happened to be working. And he basically said, if you don't go here, you won't be driving the van anymore, et cetera, et cetera. So there was a kind of an implied threat in it, even though he didn't say those words. And I said, well, I suppose I better go. So I went to that open meeting, which was actually a public information meeting. There was a man in the town who had come from Limerick and he was starting up an AA meeting in the town. And he had invited everybody in the town to come to give them information. And I remember sitting there and there was four or five people up at the front. Uh, some people said they were alcoholics. They had suits on and they looked good. And they told stories like I had read in the back of that book. And I looked at them and I was at some level interested, but at another level I wasn't because I said, well, you, you couldn't be an alcoholic at 22. Like that's, that's not possible. So I left that meeting, but, and I went down to a local pub and then to prove conclusively, I was not an alcoholic. I remember buying a pint of Guinness and leaving about a half an inch on the bottom of the glass. And then I said, with that indispensable proof, an alcoholic would never leave a drop of in the, in the glass. I said, I am not an alcoholic for sure. And I remember leaving the pub and running into the local town drunk and giving him money to go back into the bar to buy a bottle of whiskey, to come back to my room that I was living in so that we could drink it. But that didn't count because I had left on the bottom of that glass a little bit of alcohol, so I wasn't an alcoholic. So that was conveniently rationalized away. So a year later, uh, it's three o'clock in the morning. I'm in the house that I happened to be born in. And I'm there with a woman that I had an affair with a year before. And I was trying to rekindle that and there's the remains of a bottle of whiskey on the table between us. And she said to me these words, and I, I, I have to keep an open mind here now because strange things happen. And she said to me that she said she was in love with somebody else. And it seemed to me in that moment 
that that word love seemed to hang above the bottle of whiskey somehow. This strange thing. And I said to her, well, you're very lucky because nobody loves me. The only thing I do is drink and I can't stop. And I said to her, do you think that Father Holden could help me? Now, Father Holden was a friend of the family who happened to be staying at a house on that weekend. And she said, if you think he can help you, go and ask him. So at half past three in the morning, I went upstairs, went into that man's room, knelt on the floor beside his bed, woke him up and said, Father Holden, I can't stop drinking. Could you take me to Alcoholics Anonymous? And I don't know why I said Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm assuming it was because I remember the man, the people speaking the year before. Maybe it was something from the book. Maybe it was something from that article I read in the paper. But I did ask him to take me to Alcoholics Anonymous. But we had no idea what it was. So he said he would. He told me to go to bed. And in the morning, we would find it. So I went to bed. And in the morning, I got up. I don't get up early when I'm drinking. I got up around about noon. And I went down. Then I began to think back over the night before. And I said, oh, God. Jesus, I'm after waking up that man and now I've asked him to help me. And Jesus, I don't want, I don't want anything to do with Alcoholics Anonymous. I just need to get to the bar. So I said, hopefully it's he won't be there. But when I got to the bottom of the stairs, guess who was there? It was Father Holden waiting for me. And I began to apologize to him to say, sorry, Father, for waking you up. You know how we do stupid things in blackouts, etc. Only I could remember this. I was just a little sidebar there. One night I I woke up one morning and this lady that I love so very much said to me, did you mean what you said last night, Paddy? I said, oh, Janie, what did I say? But I said, yeah, of course I meant it. And she said, uh, when were you thinking? I'm thinking, what was I thinking? Because I have no idea what I said. And then she said to me, you don't remember, do you? And I said, well, you know, to be honest, I, I don't. What did I say? She said, you asked me to marry you. And I said, yes. And you know something that scared the life out of me so much that I, I don't think I've yet recovered from it. But that's the kind of thing that, you know, happens. If you, and sometimes it's better not to remember. But this morning I remembered that I had been up in the room waking up Father Holden. And I'm apologized. Sorry, Father. Yes, blah, blah, blah. And he, and he said, what, what doesn't work like that, Paddy? He said, you asked me to take you to Alcoholics Anonymous. I need to fulfill that promise. Get in the car. We're going to find it. And we went to that town that was mentioned earlier by, uh, I think it was Bridget, Ken Mayer. I happened to be working there temporarily. It was Monday morning. I had not. I had decided not to go to work as I was too drunk from Sunday night and I wasn't going to work, which was another common practice. Don't go to work on Monday. So um, anyway, he took me out there. That's 40 miles from where I came from. He went into the local church. He talked to somebody in there. He came back into the car and he said, there's a man out the road who's supposed to be off the drink 
and he might be in AA. Why don't you go and talk to him? So we did. He went out. He found this man. He went into his house. He left me sitting in the car. He came back out. He brought me into the house and he said, this man's name is Paddy. Whatever he tells you to do, do it. I have to go home now. So he left me there with this other Paddy and he went away. So I stayed the afternoon with Paddy and he was the first man that I met that understood alcoholism. Now I had made three conscious attempts to stop drinking on my own previously in the last year or so. I had made conscious attempts. I had said people had convinced me I had a problem. So I said, well, I'll just stop then. So I stopped drinking, but it didn't work. I was back drinking. It was a New Year's Eve, I remember, and I was back drinking New Year's Day and night. So that didn't work. The next time I tried was Lent, Ash Wednesday. Everybody in Ireland gives up the booze on Ash Wednesday. I survived Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. And then it came into my head that Sundays don't count during Lent because there's 40 days between Ash Wednesday and Easter Sunday, which today is, interestingly enough, and uh, Sundays are exempt. So I decided I could drink on Sundays and it would be okay and not drink the rest of the time because I'm off the drink. Now, that's an interesting thing because there's a thing called rationalization that occurs with addictive people. They come up with ways of thinking that are so bizarre, they don't make any sense to objective viewers. But to the subjective thinker, the alcoholic, it makes perfect sense. So I figured I could drink and not drink at the same time. It was ridiculous. But so I drank on Sunday. And do you think I went back to my abstinence on Monday? No, because I had just simply reactivated the thing again. Now, I didn't know these things at the time. I'm just trying stuff. And just before I got to that town in Kinmare, which where I was working temporarily, I said, the new job will stop me. I can't go into work Monday morning in this new job, new responsibility, and be smell a drink off me. So I'm in a hotel the night before, in the local hotel. It's seven o'clock in the evening. I'm dying for a drink. I can't drink. I'm in a hotel, there's a bar downstairs. If you've ever been in a hotel or anywhere dying for a drink, trying to battle it by yourself, good luck. So I, I, I gave up, my nerves were so bad, I went down and I had a drink and did I just have one? No, there till one or two o'clock in the morning and then I have to go into this new job reeking of booze and blah, blah, blah. So it was shortly after that, that I had this I was at home where I came from for the weekend and I had this experience with the priest. So he brought me back to that town. We met this man. And then that man, that man took me to an AA meeting that night. It was in Killarney in the friary, if everybody, anybody's ever been there. And I went in there and it was the first time I'd gone to an AA meeting. And there were people there that said things like they were sober for three months or two years or a year. And they were, they had did something, a say thing, and it helped them. And I had no reason to doubt them. I said, okay, I guess if they can do it. So I 
I sat there smoking cigarettes, listening to them. And then Paddy took me back to Kenmare and into the place I was staying. And every day after that, I would go to his house and stay there all evening after work. And he would talk about A and recovery. And um, I then had to leave him and go back to that original town where I was working. So he said, there's a man there also in AA. I want you to meet him. So he sent me to meet him one night and I went to the meeting there. And lo and behold, it was the man who had started, the man who was at that public relations meeting or public announcement meeting a year before. His name was Austin. And he was there and he had sat every Wednesday evening at that meeting on his own. And then I walked in a year later and I said uh, to meet him, I said, Austin, do you think you could help me? And he said, yeah, sure. So when I got back to that town, which was coming up to Christmas, uh, I got sober on the 9th of September and then it's coming up to Christmas. So um, I, another interesting thing happened. This is very common apparently around the three month mark, the novelty of staying sober wears off. And uh, yeah, I had no problem saying I was an alcoholic. I wasn't really interested in anything spiritual or anything God-like because I had given up on God when I was 20. And one morning at the shore of the lake, I looked down and I saw the bodies of my nephew and his cousin, 14 years old, dead. They had drowned in a kayak accident and we found them early in the morning and their bodies were there. And I remember consciously at that time saying, well, there can't be any God because God wouldn't do that. And I remember out loud using the F word and saying F God and all that goes with it. And I just drank all that stuff away. So here I am back and trying to get sober and I'm in Alcoholics Anonymous. And the next thing, they're talking about God again. Now I grew up in a Irish Catholic home where I was told all about God, who God was and who God wasn't. And if I didn't believe it was beaten into us by a cruel and unusual educational system that beat children if they couldn't learn. A barbaric, awful way to teach children. And it damages people's spirits so much they don't even realize it. And they carry it with them all their lives until they get into booze and drugs and then they try to sort it all out. So, so here am I being presented again with uh, this God thing. And I remember Austin saying to me one night, it was an interesting thing because it was a simple thing. He said, Paddy, I know you want to leave A. A as such was only him anyway. And uh, he said, but before you do that, Go home tonight, he said, and sit down, close your eyes and go into your favorite pub and order your favorite drink in your mind. And he says, when you put the drink down, ask yourself this question. Uh, where do you go from here? So I thought that was a stupid thing to be asking somebody intelligent like me to do. But anyway, I did it. And you know, when I closed my eyes and I had that imaginary drink and I put the glass down and I asked myself the question, where do you go from here, Barry? And you know what the answer was? I'll have another drink. 
And I knew in that instant I was caught in a dilemma. I would have to do something because if I didn't, I'd go back drinking. And the only thing being offered was Alcoholics Anonymous and its spiritual way of life, which did not appeal to me. However, when I rephrased the third step like this, my will and my life and my care translates into drinking whiskey at a bar. If I were to hand my will and my life over to the cat, they'd do a better job. So there was the dilemma. It was either my way, which I knew was doomed, or this other way, which I had not great interest in, but it was simply the lesser of two evils. That's all. And what had I to lose? I had heard the people at the meeting saying that they got well doing this. So that was the moment that I decided to buy into this other thing. You see, the, the crisis with the priest was just a crisis. That crisis, the crises don't keep me. The crisis didn't keep me. I got three months out of it. Yeah, I've, I'm in trouble. I, but I'm feeling well now. I'm not in trouble anymore. I'm feeling well. I want to go off and do whatever I want to do. So the choice is, well, what do you do? And I can't do that. So I'll try this. So Austin said to me, well, what we should do now, we should do an inventory. And it was really in that inventory process that I discovered some of the things that got me to pick up the first drink. What I also didn't know at the time was that my physiological body processes alcohol different to non-alcoholics. And if I start drinking, I have to have more. Non-alcoholics go to sleep. I didn't know that either at the time, but I discovered that later on. And that you see that mentioned in Alcoholics Anonymous. They, they call it an allergy. So here am I trying to keep myself emotionally and mentally sane enough so that I don't think picking up the first drink is a good idea. Because if I don't pick up the first one, I can't die from addiction. It's an impossibility directly anyway. So I am there, I am struggling with this. And then I would say, well, what is it that, that would cause me to pick up the first one anyway? And then there's, then that's where I discover all these interesting things. So I remember Austin asking me, how angry are you, Patty? I said, I'm not an angry man. What are you talking about? Well, he says, let's find out. So I started with my family and worked outwards. So I asked myself, well, am I angry at my father? Well, I didn't know. But then when I gave it some thought, I discovered sure every, everybody who grows up in an alcoholic home is angry at the alcoholic. And then I began to acknowledge this. It was a lot of shame, a lot of anger, a lot of disappointment and frustration. And then I said, well, are you angry at, are you angry at your mother? Well, my mother died when I was eight years old of cancer. How could I be angry at her? I'm an Irish Catholic boy. We're not supposed to be angry. But then I discovered I was very angry at her because she abandoned me and left me. And that's an interesting thing to discover, that you could be angry at somebody who died when you're kind of supposed to feel sad, etc. And I remember when I gave that some thought, I remember the moment that I closed down emotionally. 
I was standing at my mother's grave and they were throwing the earth in on top of the coffin. I can still hear the stones hopping off the cover. And I said, I will not cry. And that was the beginning of my emotional shutdown. I see it very clearly and going forward. And then when I began to examine, was I angry at the school system? Oh, boys, was I ever angry at the school system and their cruelty and certain people and individuals and their barbaric way of treating children. And I remember one day watching the teacher beat a young girl so much that she wet the floor, standing up, being punished because she couldn't spell a couple of words. But because all that gets normalized in a person, they don't know the difference. I didn't know what it was like to have a healthy, normal childhood. This is the normality. And then I looked at, am I mad at the church? Oh God, am I ever mad? I never enjoyed a day going to church. Always terrorized by God. You're going to go to hell. You're this and that and the other. And um, uh, sexual stuff that came up in um, confession and all this and the shame and all the rest of it with that. My God. I discovered an awful lot of things in my soul that were, I would con I would use the one word, oppression. Oppression of the spirit, the breaking of the spirit, make you conform to a way of life that does not suit your spirit. But because you're young and you're powerless, you cannot fight back, you have to suck it up. And then I went away to, you'll get a laugh out of this. I went away to become a Christian brother when I was 12. And you know why I went away? Because I was so bereft of love and wanting to feel loved that I felt if I went off to join the brothers, all the people in the village would think I was a great guy. They'd all love me. Except when I got to the brothers, I really didn't want to be there. So I survived there two years and then I left. And I came back and went to the regular technical school. And then I was there and I couldn't even talk to girls. Honest to God, I was totally afraid of girls to talk to them because I had no idea how to deal with them. And when I had my first date at, I think I was 17, I almost died. But the, the struggle it was to go on the date. But I managed to any, but anyway, that lasted about a year. And then I told, I remember telling her that I loved her. And as soon as those words came out of my, my, my mouth, I couldn't handle it. I could not handle the idea of loving somebody because with it came so much responsibility and fear that I had to break it off. And then I started drinking. And then the drinking took all that away. All the angst from the school, all the angst from the alcoholic home, all the angst for the inability to talk to women, all the angst from the, all of it went away by picking up a drink or two. And I had no idea that drink was so powerful until I did that inventory and said, do you see, Patty, you're so full of angst that if you don't find some way to deal with it, you'll have to pick up a drink. You don't have any choice. You'll be demented. And lights began to come on. And as I talked about that with Austin, I began to see, oh my, there's a lot more to this than meets the eye. And then I, um, somewhere around the six month mark, I guess, 
I felt one day that I had the alcohol thing beaten. And I, I don't know how to describe that other than that I was no longer afraid of it. Because my original belief was that when you stop drinking, you will, I would always want to drink, no matter what I did. I'd always be craving alcohol and, you know, it would be a torturous life that would have to be endured with no relief. And somewhere after that inventory process, that seemed to change. And I said, isn't that's amazing. Now, also, I, you know, I was doing other things in A as well, like getting involved and stuff. But I remember making that connection that between the discovering of all this angsty stuff, talking about it, acknowledging it, accepting it, not judging and condemning myself for it, there was some sense of freedom and the need to drink did not seem to be there. So then Austin asked me to make a list of people that I had had harmed during my drinking and I should try to make amends to them, uh, which I did. And I didn't like doing that, but I didn't often see the reason for it, but I can see it very clearly now that in a way the, the process of change that's brought about by the Alcoholics Anonymous is ultimately about healing. And it's about healing my spirit, but I would call my spirit. Now, spirit by spirit, I would mean my authentic self or my inner self, whatever. Um, and the process is about healing. And it's not so much whether I acknowledge it or not, but that in the doing of it, the healing comes about and thereby shows me that the process works. So initially, when I was way back at that third step, I was I was taking a step into the unknown. I had no idea what anything would, would happen other than it would have to be better than the way I was. Well, that turned out to be the case, yeah, but I, I didn't know it at the time. I had to actually do some of it to see if it actually worked. And the interesting part about it, it helped me greatly. And uh, in the process of Alcoholics Anonymous, that, that took me up to around... Uh, when the, those amends were done, um, sometimes they call the, the steps 10, 11, and 12, the living steps. But I, I'm not a great man for prayers, and I have never been happy with prayers that I learned by rote. But I tried some of them anyway. I suppose that didn't do many harm. But uh, I came to Canada then. I met my wife in Ireland at a meeting, and we, she was from Canada. I came to Canada about six years sober and I was here about six or seven years and an interesting thing happened. Uh, I got fed up with AA and recovery and I decided I didn't want to go anymore. So I didn't. I stopped going for about a year. So I wouldn't wish the state of mind that came upon me in that year on anybody. Now, fortunately, I didn't drink but I went through a year, year and a half of utter emotional and mental <clears throat> awfulness that I wouldn't wish on anybody because <clears throat> I had cut off my support system. I had cut off the people that were helping me. I had cut off my community <clears throat> and I was beginning to suffer the consequences. So one night I found myself at an AA meeting to take too long to get into it now. The subject under discussion was the thinking that precedes the first drink. 
There were seven people at the meeting. The six people before me, I was the last to speak, had all got drunk. And that night I realized that it wasn't a matter of if I would get drunk. It was simply a matter of when. And then a whole new insight into addictive thinking came about because I saw I only have a drinking problem when I'm drinking. I have a big living problem when I'm not, and I have an even bigger thinking problem. And if I don't hear other voices to keep my thinking straight, I ultimately will drink again. So the reality of the need for community was very clear on that night. And I said, oh my God, I, I have to stay with this outfit forever. But it was with a new, out, it was a new out, outlook. I saw deeper than I had seen before. That alcoholism in its simplest form is addiction to alcohol when I'm using it. Alcoholism in the broader sense is if you don't keep yourself well, Pally, you'll go back there. So that was a huge awakening for me. And I've never forgotten that because it, it showed me that along the way, the things I needed to hear and experience have occurred. And that's been really, really enlightening. The, the next huge breakthrough I, I had was in my 40s. Uh, I went back to it and I got involved again at a bit deeper level and so forth. But I was, there was a lot of problems in sobriety too, which would take too long to get into now. But one of the things that I had neglected was meditation. I see it mentioned there in the, you know, the sought, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him. And I used to hear people talking at meetings right all the way down through my recovery for many years. And they'd be saying things like, my best friend is my higher power. And I'd be thinking to myself, what are they talking about? I, I don't have that. And I've been around like 25 years. What am I missing here? And the interesting thing about it was I ran into, in a book, a man that came, had relatives in Ballinskelligs, which is down in Southwest Kerry as well. His name happened to be John Main. And he was a man who discovered and showed me that meditation is for everybody. So I tried meditation. And meditation changed everything. Completely. Totally. And meditation opened up for me the peace that was missing. And I would refer to that as the inner world and also the connection to the consciousness of the world. See, my understanding of God when I started out was he was an old man who sat in a cloud with a beard and he was asleep half the time. And all the people of Ireland were forever praying to him. But when he woke up, whoever happened to be praying at the time got their request granted. And then he went back to sleep again. That was my concept of God that came out of childhood. And I dragged it along with me all the years. And then it varied from time to time. And Alcoholics Anonymous freed me up from there. He also, it also showed me that 
I could choose my version of a higher power. That's incredibly freeing that I could actually go against the church and become a heretic and choose my own concept of God. That's incredibly freeing when I tried it. So here we are now much later and now I'm discovering meditation and meditation opens up a whole new world. And for anybody who's interested in it, I would strongly recommend give it a shot. The first thing I learned through meditation when I did it every day, twice a day, some months into it, I realized that within me was a prisoner, an emaciated, neglected, broken prisoner. And but that I also was the warden. And that was a problem. I am a prisoner and I am the warden. How do I reconcile that? Well, my original thought was we better get the warden out of a job and nourish the prisoner. And there's that too. But also I think the, the better way to go is that the warden and the prisoner need to be reconciled. They need to get to know one another. And it was the first time that I began to see in a deeper way, this duality that seems to occur within us. Sometimes people call it the ego versus the spirit or whatever. But I saw this very clearly that I am in a way the author of my own misery or my own joy, but I have to find a way to reconcile it. And the interesting part about it was we were told up, grown up that, you know, you have to have faith and all this and that. And and I'm thinking to myself, how do you have faith if you don't have faith? And it, the meditation resolved it all because in meditation, and this is where I, I was quite fascinated because I had no idea what to expect. And I was incredibly pleasantly surprised that it seems to me anyway, and I can only speak for myself, that within me is a way of listening. It's called silence listening, sitting quietly with myself to allow what I would now call the consciousness of the universe to talk to me or listen to it. It's interesting that Bill Wilson used that word, improve our conscious contact with God, as we understand it. I could look, I could rewrite that 11th step now and say, simply sought through meditation and leave it at that. Sought through meditation and let the meditation show me what I need to see and hear. That's an incredibly powerful thing. I did not expect that. I did not expect that within every human being there is the capability to be connected to whatever it is that's out there or in there or we're together. I did not expect it at all. So that's why I say meditation changed everything. And then it began, it began, as I get older, it begins to make more sense. Because as a human family, if you like, if I'm sitting here in Toronto, in the silence, and there's somebody in the middle of a field in China, sitting in silence, we are connected. We are the same. That's the power of it. 
And why shouldn't it be so? We're all human beings. Am I special because I'm alcoholic? No. The addiction, it turns out, is the thing that got my attention initially. And it says, listen, you can't live like this. You'll die. Hey, may might come back as something else, but it doesn't matter. If you keep living like this, you're, this world is, forget it. So I find my way into AA. They throw many times religious type concepts at me, but underneath them is something. So I stick at it. I do the best I can. I, and then I discover this meditation thing. That's almost, almost casually mentioned. And that begins to change everything. It's interesting also there, I think, in, when they describe a spiritual experience, there's a line that goes along the lines of, we discover uh, an inner resource that we didn't know was there. Uh, that was very powerful for me and remains so, actually. I, I, every morning I make meditation. It also shows me in these pandemic times that as people who have an approach to life that might be considered a bit different, it makes the handling of things like the pandemic a piece of cake. Uh, as all, all kinds of people around here, they're all out of their minds about the pandemic and what's gonna happen and what's not gonna happen and vaccines and the first vaccine and the second vaccine. And they're all very angst ridden, but it doesn't bother me so much. We'll get through it. But I would have to say that uh, the, the meditation and the other piece of a philosophy that has been very useful now is living a day at a time because that shifts the concept of time away from past, present, future, basically to now. So it's interesting that staying in the now or staying in the day and allowing this meditation consciousness thing to work, there is peace. They, they used to say that the pursuit of happiness is what we should be doing. I don't agree with that anymore. It's the pursuit of peace. If I can find peace, I don't have to be happy or sad, really. It's, it, it's all workable. It's all doable. It's all. But this idea of peace, I think, is, is, is a way more helpful to me these days than anything else. So I just have to watch the time here. It's quarter. So um, that's been part of my journey along the way. Um, I have struggled always. Uh, I notice nowadays uh, the word spiritual is getting a lot of baggage attached to it, much like religious, that got a lot of baggage attached to it. And the word spiritual is now getting baggage attached to it. And um, one of the, but I don't know of any other word. I think consciousness is a good word, inner consciousness or whatever. But one of the things that I have I have learned and I believe very much today is that I need to listen to my spirit, or whatever new word we might come up. It it is a tremendous guide, and always has been. I remember at seven years old, the priest coming to the school one day and telling us we were all sinners. I remember him even saying, I'm a priest, he said, and I'm a sinner. I had no idea what he was talking about. And a little voice inside said to me, don't believe him, Pally. You're not a sinner. But when 4 million other people in Ireland say you're a sinner, and one little voice says, I'm not, guess who wins? 
the the mass the masses win because they're overpowering and um i don't see that today now i see very much that uh we all have this ability to be free within ourselves i think anybody who has addiction and has decided to use it as a catalyst for change the thing that wakes us up is on the right path i think it's some people i have heard say i'm glad i'm an alcoholic i'm happy i had this that this was the thing that brought me to my uh you know awoke me so that's good too but um that that's been part of my journey so uh i'm i work also in the field of addiction and um sometimes i have to go in and give a talk on 12 step principles and um i get a lot of resistance from people uh one of the things that i asked them to do and i've done it with them is if you take the 12 steps of alcoholics anonymous and take out all the references to god and to spirituality you will be left with seven steps you'll get you'll keep the first one get rid of two and three take the word moral out of four take the word god out of five get rid of six and seven keep eight nine and 10 dump 11 and hang on to 12 and you'll have seven secular steps that are sound therapy and are used in every single interchange between a client and a therapist i have a problem i inv- i find out how i got to have the problem i restore harmony to my relationships i keep an eye on myself and maybe i pass on a little bit of what i found no mention of god no mention of spirit built into it funny enough i don't even know if they knew it was there but sound secular everyday therapy if you happen to be somebody who believes in god and somebody who acknowledges that perhaps we have a spiritual side you've got an extra you've got a bonus you can throw in there <clears throat> uh i found that quite interesting when i did that exercise um and when i'm talking to people in classes now i just say look if you have a problem with this it's fine don't worry about it just eliminate it now a lot of times people will say to people well you know you don't have to believe my concept of god and the, and they'll come back and say well you just you're just feeding me the pablum under a different name you're trying to give me the lemonade and a different name and i said no no let's take it right out and see what's left if there's nothing left fine if there's something left well maybe you might find it useful so that's uh, that's that's that that's it that's interesting and uh, sometimes people have a chat with me after and they say things well i never looked at it like that well one of the things that i've noticed about and i'm not sure if it's just true of addictive people deep down inside of us the addictive substance or activity brought us comfort and at some deep level we want to hang on to it and if any little thing comes up that we can use to throw the baby out with the bath water we tend to do it often in 12 step philosophy the thing people seize on is the god thing they call it and then they dump the lot because of that um smart tech smart there's also the smart movement around at the moment people find things there too that they don't like it is my humble opinion that because addiction is death dealing 
anything I can use to help me, I should be open-minded enough to try it. Keep the pieces of it that help me and dump the rest. That At least that way, I'm doing something to help myself. Uh, we get very caught up at times in the existentialism of the world and whether God exists or not, blah, blah, blah. It, it, at the end of the day, when I go back to that third step and that experiment I did, all I was, I see it now, all I was simply saying was, Paddy, your way does not work. If you're left to your own devices, you'll go back drinking. Try anything. It has to be better. No matter what it is, walking under your hands up and down the street, it has to be better. So all I had to do was have enough open-mindedness to give it a shot and trust that I would see now and trust that the universe will take me where I need to go. And I can say now, having had 40-something years of recovery, I would say 45 years off the booze, sober, maybe 10, when you add all the good pieces together, because <laughs> there's a lot of trouble too. But anyway, um, I haven't gone back to drinking, and to me that is a tremendous freedom. So... I leave it at that, and I'm just going to close with this little poem that I wrote. Because I really do believe that every addictive person I have ever met has a broken spirit. Whether they know it or not, whether they admit to it or not, their authentic inner self is broken, damaged, and in need of repair. So I'm just going to read this. I call it the people of the broken spirit. Each and every night, as we try to put things right, we sit inside these rooms, our new life-giving wombs, and talk about dead lives, lost partners, lovers, wives. We tell of damaged health, of passing fame and wealth. We say about the awful fights, the cold and hungry nights. We talk of being defeated, how badly friends we treated. We speak of lies, deceit, and fraud, of lost belief in God, talk of dire afflictions, our numerous addictions. We mention desperate cravings, delusions, fearsome ravings, and we know of what we say, for we have lived it day on day. Now in these rooms we seek relief from what we speak, a way to truly feel our damaged, broken spirits heal, a chance at lasting peace, some genuine release, here we come to know the truth. There is no fast or easy route, but what we do receive is one single day's reprieve. This is the gift these rooms can give, this very day to live. And it is enough for us, the people of the broken spirit. So thank you all very much for listening to me. I've run out of steam. <laughs>